One thing that we learned in the pandemic is that remote work is here to stay. It is not going away. And if you're a small business owner, you might want to build a remote first business. There's a lot of advantages from costs as well as the ability to reach talent that you wouldn't normally be able to reach just in your local geography. And today we are talking about how you can build a strong remote first company and unlocking unstructured data in your business as a key advantage. We sit down with Kirk Maple, the founder of Unstruck Data, where he leads a remote first business, has raised a ton of money over Zoom and gets into some of the best practices when raising venture capital via Zoom and what unstructured data is and why it is so crucial to your business and can be the differentiator that leads to success. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley podcast, where it is my job to talk to entrepreneurs, VCs, and top performers to understand what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. Go ahead and pound that subscribe button so you get notified when episodes air every Friday. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Silicon Alley podcast featuring the Kirk Maple. Are you interested in growing and scaling your business? Welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast, where you'll hear from entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and top performers on what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll walk away with actionable insights you can apply in your own business and life. Now to William Glass, the CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Kirk, welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited to have you on today. Yeah, same here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, and I'm really excited to sit down and talk to you for a couple of reasons. One, um, you've got a deep technical experience, which I think is is really, really interesting and brings a, a different flavor to the podcast than what we have had on recently in terms of entrepreneurs that tend to be more business focused. Uh, but you also are a founder and business focused in that, that regard have been in technology leadership. So, you know, I'm interested to dive in as someone that does have, you know, tech, technical expertise, what has been the process like for building unstruck data and then you know, obviously let us know what the business is for the uh, audience's context. For sure. Yeah, no, unstructured data, it's what we're calling it is an unstructured data warehouse. So it's kind of like Google Photos on steroids for industries. So it's a way you can put all your media into a SaaS service and everything from 3D to images to documents. So it's a, the process was really interesting. So I came from the media and entertainment industry, like software industry, um, had a video transcoding company for a number of years and had worked at Microsoft and all that. But I started to see all these parallels in the kind of quote industry side of the world that was having a lot of the same pain points that we were solving for the broadcasters and studios. And from working at General Motors, from working at a bunch of, I was CTO and VP at a few different companies, I kept seeing this threat of everybody's trying to build it themselves. And that was really what I finally, I started working on it on the side, um, kind of a side project for fun. And I still write code <laughs> like every day. So it's, a, it's It was kind of a passion project. And then it just was the right time and was able to spin this out, get funding for it. And yeah, I mean, we're cranking away for release in, a, in like about four to six weeks. So it's a, it's been an exciting, exciting journey. Yeah, no, that's exciting. And I love the ability to blend your background, both in media and then getting into like, you know, manufacturing industrial and yep. the industry side. And, you know, those are two worlds that uh, don't really necessarily, uh, yep. you know, have a lot of overlaps. Well, you'd think so. And that's what I was really surprised where, I mean, we had been building software for, I mean, like NBC and ESPN and folks like that for years. And there was all these kind of needs around, I mean, what their kind of uh, technical needs were. And when I started to look at, okay, well, video coming off of an autonomous vehicle, there's actually, I mean, a ton of volume there. 
but yeah. the data streams that are recorded are actually kind of similar to closed captioning in a way where closed captioning is kind of time synchronized text. And if you think about time synchronized data on a vehicle of like, I mean, what, what heading it's on or I don't know, I mean, temperature kind of classic IOT things like that. I think that's where I kind of came in as a sort of naive person starting to see, wow, there's all these parallels there, but there isn't good tooling around it. And so that's where I really started to hit on of like, especially at GM even, we were trying to build something like this. And I've talked time and time again even to somebody yesterday, a big company, well-known company, building it in-house. And so I just, that's where I think there's a, I mean, our thesis is there's a, a sort of picks and shovels, kind of just build a platform and build, then have companies build on top of it um, model that uh, okay. we're super focused on. That's awesome. Yeah. So giving the tools to these companies in order to build yep. great products. So they, you know, they don't have to go start from scratch. They've got a, a strong baseline and can utilize unstruck and unstructs uh, tools in order to do that. Yeah. And it's difficult having, I mean, selling a platform is always very difficult. And so I've had that experience in the past where you have to have a UI, have to have a front end app with good application to get people into it. But the power is kind of behind the scenes. So we're doing both. I mean, we're happy. We have a really nice web application we're building that gives them access to exploring their data. Um, but also it's, there's a very powerful platform that over time we expect people to kind of go directly to the platform because that's kind of what I saw in the past and uh, be, you have to build both. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So the application layer is something that's easy, you know, get value right away, something that people can access. And then platform is for folks that want to actually build their own applications on top of it. Yep, yep, exactly. Still just working with design partners. I mean, kind of it's everybody from ports to chemical companies to manufacturing companies that we're talking to, but they're dealing with masses of data. I mean, hundreds of terabytes of data that they just don't have organized well. I mean, everybody has great tooling for what does a SQL database look like? Or what, I mean, it's a glorified spreadsheet in a lot of ways. But <laughs> it's, I mean, what, when you're dealing with files of all of these different types, I mean, even to 3D and things like that, it's massive work just to even get access to the data, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I, you've kind of alluded to this and touched on it. So could you clearly define though what you mean by unstructured data versus <laughs> structured data? Yeah, I mean, it's, and it is a term that, I mean, different people have different things. I mean, it's, you see unstructured data used a lot in um, like logs and, and it's just kind of logs for, for software and things like that. But for us, it's, you could sort of replace it with media files per se. It's everything from images to video to 3D to documents. Typically it's stored in cloud storage, like object storage, like an S3 bucket or a data lake. But what we see is, I mean, it's, it is semi-structured in a way that, there is always metadata. I mean, you can get EXIF tags out of your photos and know your GPS location. And so our first pass of what we do is bring that content in and try and grab whatever structured data we can find. And so we call that the entity extraction phase. And then we actually align everything into a knowledge graph. So we can create edges between common things. And we've kind of simplified it down to just a tagging model, basically extract tags from anything documents, images, whatever, and then try and correlate all those, those pieces together. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, using the bits of information for, you know, unstructured data that, that are structured, the meta tags, when things were mm -hmm. created, file names, all the location data, all that sort of, that sort of information. And then using that to mm -hmm. then go deeper and get yeah. into the things that are harder when you're talking about like closed captioning, for example, on video and, yeah. you know, applying some of those principles to unstructured data. 
Yeah. And then, I mean, machine learning, computer vision, all those things kind of come in as a second layer of, okay, once you have that data, what's inside of it? And how can you extract more information from it? That's where things really get interesting. So you kind of have to have that meat and potatoes of the basic data management. But after that, I mean, that's that's where the, the sky's the limit on what we could actually do with that. So. Gosh. So, Kirk, when you're thinking about like the value proposition to the business, then it's mm-hmm. around the obviously you can structure unstructured data, which is great. Mm-hmm. You can sort through it, but it's being able to make decisions or what, what do you see as the real like pain point or problem that yeah, you're no. solving? That's a great question. I mean, that's, we're taking this in phases. So the first phase of the release is, okay, the, the funnel to get data into the, the platform. And then it's the extraction of information, the, or, the auto organization of that data. But you're right, what do you do with that data? That's the next phase. And we're looking at that as two ways. One is collaboration. Um, the ability to I mean, have team members comment on an image or a document or set of data and share data almost like a you know, sort of a Slack-like collaboration model around their data. That's, that's one thing. But also the other thing we've heard from customers is notifications. Um, we want to be told when something interesting happens because they have this flood of data coming in. It's, I mean, it's the Google Alerts model. It's, I got a ton of data coming in. How do I, I mean, tell someone or alert someone when something interesting is, is happening? That's really the next phase. Gotcha. That makes sense. So when you think about your target customers, so you mentioned the different industries that you serve. So who is it right now, whether it's with the application or the platform at the moment, who's, who's that target use case? Is it developers yeah. or, yeah. It's, um, so initially, and this is where it's tricky. So we're actually heading out at line of business users initially. So it's, you could say visual inspection is kind of the, the sort of broad use case that we're looking at of anybody inspecting things in the real world. So somebody, a maintenance engineer, a um, asset health and integrity person, a property management. We were talking to a major university where they're actually pretty savvy. I mean, they're, they've hand built um, a bunch of this kind of stuff with, I mean, off the shelf databases and like um, ArcGIS or some kind of system like that, but it's, they're having to cobble together solutions to manage imagery and then, then the data all related to that in that geospatial realm. And that's, what's really interesting to me. Like if, if a, if a university group um, that's super savvy is building something like this themselves, like there has to be a need for better tools. Because, I mean, it's in this kind of low code, no code world. I mean, sure. I, I mean, any line of business user can build a build an app, but this just seems like something that should exist in the market. And I mean, anybody from, from a like commercial real estate or anything like that, drones are becoming very commonplace. So it's, it's really interesting to see. I mean, the numbers, the volumes of data being captured are, are just going up and up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting when you apply, yeah, I mentioned there's some of those use cases around university or property managers being able to, you know, look at yeah. videos, properties, images, and and make decisions around maintenance or what whatever whatever mm-hmm. those decisions. How does that work? Is it so you've got something to, like called graphical search, right? Or mm-hmm. thinking about like the, that model of searching data. Can you talk a little bit about that and expand? Sure, um, sure. It's interesting. So we we kind of have um, our North Star is kind of what we call the triad of time, geospace, um, like geospatial data and metadata. And so all of everything is organized where the data comes in and we index it against those three kind of axes. So you can explore your data over time. Um, we have a nice histogram um, that you can like zoom into and get down even like, I mean, what was taken within this hour? 
or see like a bar chart and all those kind of nice graphs of over time. We have some good map interfaces. So you can see like cluster data on a map. You can create geofences, like draw a polygon, like on Zillow or something like that. And then very deep metadata search. So you can do, I mean, show me anything taken on a drone, like by a drone. And we infer that, okay, this was taken from using a drone. We can even get down to like the make or the model of um, the camera, things like that, as well as full text search. So it's those three things coming together. You can then persist it as a view, we call it. And so it's kind of like a safe search. Customers initially can just, they just throw their data in. They don't do anything else. And then they can explore it in those kind of three realms. And that's just the start. And then it's, they can add their own tags. They can, I mean, right now we, we have a bunch of out of the box ML and computer vision algorithms. So we do text analytics, we auto tag. But the goal is then to have the developers or at least ML data engineers plug in their own models later. And so documents are a great example. I was um, doing some testing last night on um, very kind of industrial, like uh, inspection reports at a facility. And there's so much language in there that the normal NLP algorithms don't grab. They don't know what the terms are. And we've seen that like in the medical community and things like that, where there's the people are building models for those verticals. That's an area we know we're going to have to do more, be able to be more pluggable because every vertical has its own language, and yeah. <laughs> it's only useful if you can if you can uh, sort of focus focus the effort. So, yeah, no, absolutely, that makes makes a lot of sense. And being able to combine document data and then you mm -hmm. know trying to trying to navigate the uh, NLP world with uh, with all the different terms and terminology yep. is is definitely a, definitely a challenge. Is this where the platform plays? So microservices is is uh, yep. I mean, it sounds like as part of the part of the um, ability to uh, you know build on the platform. Can you talk a little bit about what microservices are and how that um, works for the platform? Yeah, I mean we are a quote serverless architecture. So there's no um, virtual machines. There's no actual servers that we're managing. It's all little chunks of functionality, and it's all event driven as well. So everything is triggered by some other event. Um, and so that's an intentional architectural decision that um, makes it very scalable. And so that we're running on Microsoft Azure today. We're actually a Microsoft startups company, but we're built out in a, a way that, I mean, you could throw us 100,000 files and it'll just burst and scale out. And so we'll start running on 1,000 functions running in the background instead of 10. And then the nice thing about that is it collapses back to when it starts to go idle. So we have, um, from a microservice standpoint, I mean, we have different functional areas of that. Okay. So the upload handler, the entity extraction, the entity enrichment, all of those are, I mean, really, I mean, they're at the, almost the function level, very, a very granular level, but it makes it very easy to plug things in. So the ability for us to plug a new ML model in just kind of fits into that workflow graph um, very easily. And it's all asynchronous. So you can sort of fire things off, things happen, they put new events on the queue, they get handled. And so it's, um, it's super scalable in that sense. I mean, there's the one downside of serverless is there's a little bit of cold start time. So as it bursts, you have to kind of wait until it senses that it needs to burst out. So there's some tuning always to be done around that. But yeah, I mean, we've had, had good success with, with this architecture so far. And um, I mean, I think it's it's going to work for us in the, in the long term. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I, yeah, I like the ability to, you know, use various functions that you've got down to that level. Mm -hmm. So for full context, I'm not an engineer, but mm -hmm. built a, uh, tech product using low code and no code tools yep. 
and like, you know, learned a little bit to be able to, to, to navigate, but the ability to get down to a granular level was part of the reason that I used the platform that I use, because there's a lot of no code, low code tools out there that are like super, you can't do a lot of customization, but it yep. sounds like you've got the ability to do some really deep customization work, but it's still like, I could hop on there and probably build yep. something, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's the plan. I mean, there's an API, um, it's GraphQL, it's a pretty standard yeah. API structure that we're using. So our front end just uses GraphQL, but we're gonna offer that GraphQL API to customers as well. So you could build, I mean, use any no-code tool, low-code tool out there. I just talked to Retool uh, this week, is a really nice, I mean, kind of internal tooling. So if customers are kind of building kind of internal apps and things like that, they have direct access to GraphQL. And so they could just talk, you could build something really easily on, on our API. And I mean, it's, and that's where we really want to get to is if there's a lot of quote shadow IT um, going on at, at these big facilities where yeah. I mean, people are kind of cobbling together different things. And if we can be that kind of background platform, a, a lot of different teams can just kind of invent what that last 20%, like what that last mile is. I mean, there's so much capability. Once you get the data in there structured in an interesting way, we want to like enable an ecosystem um, around that. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I know. I love that, Kirk. In, in terms of how you built the, the platform, can you talk about your journey of, of actually developing the product um, yep. or the idea? Like you, you kind of, it sounded like you were uh, building some of these things one off for different companies, but can you talk about the, that process? Cause I'm really curious to, to hear how you've built Unstruck yeah. to this point. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so I sold my company, my last company in um, 2012. And so that was the video transcoding company, um, worked for the buyers for like three years and was just super focused on that. And then finally it was just time to do something else. And so that was like 2015. I ended up starting a little LLC on the side. Um, actually worked on that like almost I mean, full time for, for almost a year in the cloud services space. So I had been doing all on-premise software. Like um, it was all, I mean, you'd run it in your data center and all that kind of stuff. And so I wanted to get a lot of experience more building for the cloud. And so that's where I started to get a lot more Azure experience and started to learn the patterns more in cloud services. And then just happened into a great job at, at General Motors where they needed somebody with a video background. I wanted to learn new technologies. It was a great fit. We were essentially trying to build a lot of what is in this kind of unstruck thesis of, I mean, unstructured data management. I mean, we were dealing with the data off the cruise vehicles, but I was starting to see, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, use cases across multiple industries. And so I ended up just getting recruited to a couple of different jobs, like a sports data analytics company, a drone analytics company, but in the background, I was working, my hobby was like um, writing code for, I was building a podcast discovery platform and based on a knowledge graph. So it was essentially extracting, I mean, the podcasts were the unstructured data that I was extracting things from, creating a knowledge graph, built an API. Um, so I was actually just building this product on the side just for fun. And the last, I guess, around COVID times, I started to realize, number one, I was at a company where they were we were trying to incubate a product kind of in this space. And so yeah. COVID hit, things were kind of rotating around. I was trying to figure out what to do next and realized that we can kind of take the best thoughts that we were looking at in that drone space and in that space, tie it in with the, the code I'd already written and then was able to find seed funding um, for it. And so the back end of our product is, already, is code that I wrote over the last five years. So we actually came in with this <laughs> big bucket of code day one in like whatever, February of this year. And that's why we're able to get to market really fast. I mean, we only closed our funding in March, but I had 
I mean, a couple hundred thousand lines of code already written day one. And now we've mostly been focusing on being very design led from the top down. Hired a great design leader. I have a great engineering team. We've all worked together before. Um, and so now it's all about just kind of finalizing everything and packaging it and just getting a really high quality product out there. Gotcha. No, yeah, it's really interesting. So yeah, you've been working on this as a project for five years and yeah, yeah. It, yeah ended up uh, ended up being able to utilize it. So what was that process like of raising seed funding? So you already, you had code written, so you had something built that you yep. could, that you could play with. You had at least some other ideas of how you could apply it, not only to podcasting, but to mm-hmm. other industries. Yep. Talk about the process of raising that seed round. Yeah, it was interesting times. I mean, so I was at a, at a company, a drone uh, image analytics company, and we were thinking of spinning off, I mean, this concept. And it was kind of one of those things of like, do we go find funding for it? Do we spin it off ourselves? And I mean, it was all kind of right in the in the, the guts of COVID um, at that time. And so it ended up being, it probably started in around October, November of last year, and ended up starting to just get contacts of, of people that, I mean, started to show the concept to and kind of broaden and refine the concept. And, and, it, and it, it did rotate around a little bit, but it's still pretty much in the same, I mean, the same direction that, that we're heading. And so much of fundraising is just knowing the right people and just having some really great advisors and getting the right contacts and, and things started to lock down after the new year and ended up having a, a great lead investor, APC, basically led the round. And then we found a, I mean, a bunch of other great investors. It essentially did like a two-part seed round and then ended up uh, Shell Ventures, um, so like oil and gas actually came in at the end of our um, of our seed round to finish it out. So, I mean, we have some great strategic partners as well as angels, and then, uh, I mean, a great lead investor as well. So, I mean, it's definitely a process. I think, I mean, I did all of the pitching on Zoom, which is a, <laughs> a weird thing to do. I'd done some fundraising back in the day, I mean, like 10 plus years ago for my old company, but we had actually bootstrapped in that whole company. So this is the first time actually raising money. And it was, I mean, it really, it. I wouldn't say that it was that painful because I think people really got the idea and they, they started to see the... VCs we talk to are super savvy these days in terms of understanding the data market. I mean, understanding how all the pieces fit together. I mean, it, it honestly wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be um, because people, I mean, they really understood the need and from from seeing what uh, what's out there today. No, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty cool story, especially, you know, just how quickly you go from essentially just starting the company to speed yep. round to, you know, launching, you know, end of July. And sounds like you were able to get some really great partners. And what was that experience like, you know, fundraising via Zoom for, mm-hmm. for folks? Because, you know, obviously we're opening up now, but I don't think that the, uh, the Zoom meetings for fundraising are going to necessarily go away. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you can definitely pack a lot more in. I mean, that's, I think, for both from the investor side and from the the founder side, it's a lot more efficient. We're a remote first company. So it's kind of right in our sweet spot of my old company was all remote first. This company is remote first. So, I mean, we're used to communicating this way. I think there's a lot of people out there that just aren't used to presenting themselves in in that, that way. And But also it, it kind of levels the playing field a bit. I mean, I think it actually makes people a bit more casual. You have really good conversations. There's not sort of this, I mean, formality to it in a way of, I mean, going, going to their offices and, and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, everybody has a dog running around the background. Like there's always like, I mean, this, this good casualness that I think actually made the process more effective. And, and people were just kind of more thinking about the problems to solve than the formality of the sort of investor founder difference. 
Yeah, no, I like that. I think, I think you're right. It definitely does open up the playing field in terms of not having to go, you know, have the funds to go spend, to go travel to a New York or a Silicon Valley and like do that whole song and dance. Instead, you can connect with people all over the world. I mean, one of our investors over Twitter and like, I mean, just it's, it's crazy how these different connections come in, but it's, it's people I never would have met normally and was able just to have a quick call with. And I mean, even talk to people in Europe. I mean, talk to people in the East coast and, it's uh, yeah, it would be a much bigger process to, to try and do this face to face. That's awesome. Well, Kirk, in terms of the remote first, I'm, I'm curious to dig into that yeah. a little bit. So how how does that work? How how do you create and build a company and develop a team and kind of the culture in a remote first world? I mean, it's it's definitely tricky, but I think I mean, tools obviously are the big I mean, one of the first starting points of using Slack, using Google Docs very well. I think there's, I mean, we've all worked together before and have met face-to-face before, not a ton. I mean, we we would come in for quarterly meetings and stuff like that, but I mean, I think it's, I mean, you people have to have good written, written communication to explain themselves well, because that's a lot of it. And, and it's asynchronous communication too, where I'm a late night person and I have people in the Midwest who are early. And so like, there's like sometimes not overlap of like, if I'm working late at night and I leave a message for them, I have to be clear about that. And I have to like, I, I can't just sit and, and schedule a meeting to explain something to them. I have to be clear in, in writing. I think honestly, that kind of communication is key. Attention to detail is very, very important. But also I think we try and get together. I mean, we, we do like an all hands meeting where, I mean, everybody's video, like ha- have to be video on. And so there's a balance between kind of that Zoom fatigue thing where we, we do dailies on uh, daily meetings on Discord. And so we can kind of have ways to, to chat that way. We like, since we're a tech company, software company, we use Jira and, and all those kind of tools too. It's, it's really making sure you have the artifacts burn in very well that you can hand off things to other people um, very crisply. So it's, I mean, culture wise, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, you have to not every, it's not everybody's cup of tea for sure. I know there's a lot of people, even when I was at my old company, I was living in LA and commuting up to San Francisco like every week for the first six months when I started. And it was a very quiet office. And I was so surprised where I was like, look, I mean, we have an office situation, but there's just no energy there of like <laughs> communication and Slack was even quiet. And it was funny because comparing that to my remote first company that I'd been at before, we were chatty. I mean, we're all like sending, I mean, sending gifts to each other and I mean, joking around and it's, and it's just like so much more energy, even in a remote environment. So it's, it's, I mean, it's kind of the culture you want to create has to kind of come out in that. And so we, we try and be, I mean, at least lighthearted about it and not be like so serious all the time. And I think it helps kind of bring everybody into that equation. And, and, and we've been good. I mean, we've brought on contractors. We've, I mean, who then we promoted to full time. I mean, we have people all, all over the country right now. People have to be aware that we are, we are remote first. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And right, remote remote first isn't for everyone. And obviously mm-hmm. not every job company can can do that yeah. depending on what they do and what they focus on. And as you said, the culture, but it sounds like there are a lot of advantages. And I think we've we've learned that throughout <laughs> yeah. the last uh, 18 months, the ability to continue to you know, get things done and you know how you have to manage productivity a little bit differently and who's suited for remote work first. Yeah. And, and we are going to do, and we are planning quarterly retreats. So we'll get everybody together quarterly. I mean, we we're trying to figure out what our first one's going to be now, but I do think that is important. Like, I mean, going a hundred percent remote, like where you literally never meet anybody is a bit difficult, but even having a day or two just to 
see their face, even just understand people's personality better. Because I mean, some people can be a little dry, they can be a little sarcastic, they can be whatever on, on Slack and not having that face to the name, it's a little hard to parse the text sometimes. And, and that face to face really, I mean, it honestly can help a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, combining that the remote remote first for the most part, but still having time where you can actually get to know people in person and understand yeah. personality and connect in a different way than you can yeah. via the screen. So one of the things that you mentioned, Kirk, when you were talking about, you know, fundraising is that you have some angels, but you also mentioned some strategic investors. Yeah. So you mentioned Shell. Can you talk about the difference of those types of investors and mm-hmm. maybe the role that they're playing in the rollout of, of the, yeah. the platform? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. So I had met Shell through my previous company. They'd been investing in them. I mean, what I'm seeing is they have, they have a very good data science group. And there's uh, some folks I've met there that, I mean, they're super innovative. I mean, they're they're really pushing into alternative energy areas and they're they're looking out, I mean, that, that multi-year approach and they have a very strong innovation group. So that is, I mean, they really are trying to keep their thumb on how to optimize their workflows. And so I've, I actually did a talk at Shell I don't know, maybe a year and a half now ago, and they're taking videos of the undersea floor um, for their oil pipelines. And we had been helping them with some computer vision models and things like that. But it's really interesting where, I mean, this the volume of data at a company like that is just insane. And so we had been, that was another data point where I saw, look, I mean, there's just files, just, it's like strewn <laughs> on the floor. I mean, there's no organization to them. They're just like in a big bucket somewhere and there's no rhyme or reason to say, hey, I wanna to go to this GPS location in this month and show me all the videos tagged with a rock that we saw, computer vision. Like if we could just do that and, and like that compressing of all that exploration time of the data is huge for a company like that. And those are the kind of things we're enabling in our V1 is just the ability to throw a ton of data at us, we auto-organize it, and then the ability to visualize it and search it. And then over time, what they want to do is build custom models to plug into this platform. That's what we're hearing a lot from the bigger companies. But yeah, I mean, I think it's for us, the value of having a strategic partner like that is setting a long-term product roadmap, kind of seeing what their blue sky is and trying to align our long-term roadmap. I mean, I'm kind of CEO and CTO right now, but I'm also kind of functioning as head of product. So I'm kind of doing doing the long-term vision, um, but it's really trying to just make sure those quarterly progressions are make sense and we're not building things too early or too late and that kind of thing. And, and, and I love, I mean, this is where my business and tech kind of blends is I actually love talking to customers because it's the best way to do product planning. And that side of it is the more meetings we could have, I'm always getting ideas. I mean, it's, it's, you can hear them say something and I'm like, oh, wow, that fills in another little gap of something that I was thinking about. I wasn't sure if anybody would want. And so just having more people like that on our share, I mean, our, what do you call it, cap table, yeah. or, I mean, just people we meet is, is super valuable. So. That's awesome. Yeah, no. And yeah, the, the ability to have someone that can help you figure out the product, because they're also going to be, they're obviously an investor, but they're also invested as a, as a user and a consumer yeah. of the product, which allows you to set that direction. And again, they're going to be thinking about long-term vision as well, not just we want this now, or why yeah. doesn't this work? It's like, how do we build this so that it, we can get to the, to where we yeah. see that the platform could be in the next, you know, three, five, 10 years. Exactly. I mean, for us, it's a long-term bet. I mean, this is a, we're taking a pretty big swing. I mean, if we, I mean, have 
pretty high goals <laughs> for the company. I personally have high goals for the company, but I think there's there's such a need here, but it's also, we kind of have to meet customers where they are in their life cycle because some people just want a better version of iPhoto, but for like, I mean, dealing with a hundred thousand photos, not just a thousand. Some people want like this entire machine learning life cycle um, application. And so we're trying to fit, I mean, both those models kind of as an easy button and as a very professional um, developer focused tool. So. So how, how do you balance that, right? Like, as you said, you're CTO, CEO, essentially head of product. Like, how do you yeah. balance set goals and manage both, you know, the business decisions as well mm -hmm. as the, you know, technology decisions that need to be made? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. I, I almost work two jobs a day. So, like, the first part of my day is kind of product and just business stuff, like dealing with, I mean, paper, a little bit of paperwork. But also there's so many better services out there for companies now to automate all that. I mean, we love Gusto and we love Ramp and all these kind of things that, I mean, you can run your business on these SaaS services and it saves so much time. <laughs> I mean, so I'm so thankful to have like those kind of products that I can just like delegate <laughs> that <laughs> mundane stuff that I would probably procrastinate on. But then in terms of what that leaves me with is I spend a good chunk of my day just talking about like reviewing the current state of the product, current roadmap, but also I'm doing a ton of research about the market and doing a ton of reading, listening to podcasts, trying to anticipate where the kind of where the puck's going um, in that sense. But it is a balance. And so we, I mean, we try and be very iterative on it where we have a quarterly roadmap. We've broken it down into like two week sprints now. We reorganize, I mean, a little bit. Like we, we really talk it through. I mean, we have meetings every week of, okay, is this still the order that we think? And as we get new data points in from customers, we haven't changed too much, but it's kind of that, I don't know, negotiation of what the MVP is, like, what is the line? And I've been pretty aggressive about like what I think we need to ship with, but I'd rather be like shoot a little too far and then have to bring it back. And we just negotiate through that stuff with, uh, with the other leads. But there's, I mean, you're always learning and you're always I mean, coming up with something of like, like we heard uh, like single tenant, like actually deploying in a customer's cloud tenant has come up. We've heard it a couple of times. We don't know if it's a, like a must have, or like a should have. And it's always right, those are things on the bubble that we're always trying to like, you wanna get ahead of it enough because you can't wait too late. Like we can't wait to make that decision to support that until December, if somebody needs it in January. So that's a lot of my thought process is just, I mean, refinement, refinement of when do we need to bring in the things early and not do work that's throwaway. I mean, I can't, it's not easy, but it's just becomes, as long as you're you're kind of thinking about it all the time, then you can react pretty quickly. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And yeah, being able to prioritize and try to take little data points from here, from there, something yep. that you hear from a customer and try to verify, okay, is, is this just their problem or is right. this something that everyone is going to, you know, going to need and we actually do need to build this versus yeah. just this one customer that has some weird, unique use case. And it's weird. I mean, we're, I mean, we're cloud hosted. I mean, we're on Azure today and we have plans to go multi-cloud and, and deploy on AWS or GCP and we can take data from those platforms, but our code is not running on AWS today. And I mean, we've heard it from a couple of customers of like, no, well, we're an AWS shop. I mean, our security people would want this all to be running there. And it, we don't know yet. Is that one in a million customers? Is it one in five customers that want that? And so we're still trying to refine that, that yeah. process, but also we have had a little bit of pre-planning to say, well, if we would need to do this, what does it mean? And so we have kind of brainstorming meetings, we just call them where let's just try and get ahead of a couple of these things. And we don't know 
what like when we're going to implement it, but we've kind of pre-chewed the work, I would say. So yeah, that's interesting. I really I really like that. I don't know that I've heard too many people talk about you know, thinking through different scenarios, having a brainstorming session and saying, okay, we know what we would do if this does become something yeah. that we need to do and let's shelf it for now. That's yeah. interesting. And it's, I mean, it's tricky. I mean, I think it's, you kind of have to be accepting of that where I try not to give the team work that is just throwaway work. And, but there may be things that maybe we need to do a little bit of this now. We know we're going to come back to it later. And I mean, we've even done things like pre-mortems um, where, okay, we, we got this product, like what are the failure points? Start thinking through like, I mean, where may we have screwed up? I mean, where may be the problems? And so, yeah, I mean, we've been having some really interesting discussions trying to be a little, I mean, more forth, I mean, forthright or ahead of the game um, in some of these areas. But I mean, we're still small. I think we're like eight full-timers um, right now, but uh, just trying to, I mean, keep everybody's focused on the today, but also kind of what is the next thing in front of us? Sense. It makes a lot of sense, Kirk. So thinking about the the future, you know, mm-hmm. what is what does success look like? How do you define success? You know, it's a great question. Um, it's I mean, for me, it's really about market acceptance. It's I love having customers use the products that I build. And so, I mean, that pays off, obviously, financially and all those kind of things as, later. But it really starts with you got to have customers using your product. None of the other things make sense. Like you're not going to get more funding. You're not going to get I mean, an exit. And so I really focus on if customers, I mean, are happy using the application. Like it seems like a pleasant application to use. That's one part of success. And that's why I've, I mean, I treat us as very design-led, like UX heavy, UI heavy. Like we're thinking through that functionality because that's what's going to drive traction. But also it's just becoming a de facto standard, like, like a snowflake or somebody like that, or like a Databricks. Like, I mean, if you're talking blue sky success, I mean, for us, that's where I want to be is kind of one of the like like primary tier data engineering and data product providers. And I mean, there's a lot to do <laughs> to get there, uh, but it's, it's really about traction. And from a confidence level, I think I'm pretty pragmatic about it, but I think I've heard enough data points that I know there's a problem here. I think we just got to carve it down to the right solvable problem for the right, how much, what's the cost for the customer and all that kind of stuff. But it's like with the investment, with all the customer discussions we've had, there's definitely an overlooked area here. Like you either have to do it yourself. That's what we always say, like we're competing against Python programmers in a sense. Like (laughs) typically, I mean, the way you're going to solve this problem is to write code and, or you're going to kind of cobble together some tools that don't scale. And so I mean, but there's also a ton of risk. I mean, one of the big boys could come out and try and stomp all over this area, but I believe that I have a different perspective coming from the media entertainment world. Like I'm not a data scientist. Like I'm not, there's a lot of very data science first products that are coming out. I'm almost naively coming at it from an opposite direction where I'm thinking media first, the files first. And I think that gives us a, that gives us a bit of a different perspective. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And obviously, you know, vision of being that standard would be would be amazing. But even boiling yeah. it down to just customers using the product is the first, first yeah. most important thing. Really interesting. And then kind of that differentiator that you said of of being focused on the media first and the files yeah. and how how do you view this problem, this space differently than everyone else that's doing it? I think that that's so critical when you get into a heavily heavily trafficked or heavily uh, sought after area where there's just a lot of a lot of noise in the the data space and it mean i saw it a lot in in the the broadcast world and things like that it's i mean so much of 
how much they could process was based on good storage, good networking. Like it was almost more of a solutions engineering problem than a software problem. And now so much of that's commoditized these days. Yeah. I mean, things I like sort of quote invented back in the day in terms of like splitting up files into little chunks and putting them back together. Like that's how Netflix encodes videos today. Like it's all that's become commodity. And, but back 10 years ago, that was unique. And so having to come up with something that still has value and isn't just going to get stomped on by, I mean, every other vendor, we just need it. And, and we talk about being opinionated a lot. Like there's some level of what we're doing that we're very opinionated about, and we're not going to change depending on what feedback we get, because we really believe that this is, I mean, people might not see it, but this is really the, what people want should to be doing. But then there's the other percentage of it of, taking in that feedback and adjusting and making sure that, oh, maybe we screwed up. You, you got to balance that. But I do think you have to be opinionated about some part of it. Otherwise, you just get dragged around by every customer meeting you have. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, having that opinion and here's what we believe. And it allows people to say, well, we believe that too. And yeah. that makes sense or it doesn't. And I think one of the other things that you mentioned earlier on in the conversation was that you're focusing on line of business, right? As being mm-hmm. the customer where it sounds like a lot of folks in this space are more focused on the data scientists or the that yeah. community versus how can line of business create the applications that they need without having to go bring in resources internally to or externally to to build the tools that they need because we're i mean basically to that since we're focusing on the capture side so we're going upstream and i said from day one of this product of i mean follow the data and so we're actually building out a mobile app for basically streamlining data capture so capturing images capturing video i mean you get your geotagging of the, the images but i mean we can do um, you can put in tags, you can put in comments, you can, and then almost like a, as you're walking around, you can use almost like a four square kind of model. You can see what other media was captured around you. So like somebody at a port can walk around and see the data captured last week or the, da- the last month automatically. And then we want to encourage people to put in data through that method. It helps the fidelity of their data downstream. And so we're really just focused on, okay, this first kind of say half of the year, um, or the, I guess the next six months are really, how do we get more data put into our warehouse? And then then really, and, and collaboration on that data is key. But then the next part is, well, what do you do with that data? Like you said yeah. before of, do you run more algorithms on it? I mean, do you um, notify when things happen? I mean, there's just so many other interesting things we can do for alerting and things like that. And that's where people want to go. That's where customers want to go. We have to have the data first. And that's, yeah. um, that's really what we're starting with. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I can even see application where you're you're pulling in data that's not even related to someone putting it in themselves, right? Publicly available stuff, pulling yep. in Google Maps or what, whatever it is. Someone posted on Twitter a video in Times Square yep. and here's, I don't know, pulling in all that other information. You can really make that some was, very interesting decisions. That was my whole thing of the, the podcast discovery platform where when live events were a thing, like I was a big, I mean, it did, went to see a lot of live music and things like that. And I always thought, look, there's so much other information that's out there that, I mean, you can't see what, like, it's it's that concept of a graph. You can't see, like, what other, I mean, this band played at this um, this event at this club, who played at that club before, and almost like a better bands in town kind of concept, yeah. but to explore that graph of data that's being generated by all those live music events and those bands and their collaborations. And, I mean, obviously Spotify is doing some of this and bands in town is doing some of this, but I had a view of, look, there's more data there that if you could go scrape web pages and scrape Twitter, like you're saying, and 
federate all this data, enrich all this data together. And honestly, that's the technique that now we're using for this industrial data. And the goal is, oh, you want to go enrich with an API on their side for their equipment list or something like that. You can do that. So, but the, the platform is rather generic that, I mean, maybe someday we'll come around and build a music app. I doubt it, but it's, I mean, the guts of the product honestly are pretty, um, can be used for any domain, but we're, we're targeting this domain first. Makes sense. That makes sense. Kirk, so I want to transition a little bit here. So my, yeah. my focus uh, outside of this podcast is on personal finance. Um, yeah. And I always love to talk to entrepreneurs and get, uh, and kind of get their, <laughs> their kind yeah. of take on, on this. So I'd love to understand um, how you would describe your relationship with money. Up and down. <laughs> so I lived through uh, the stock market crash of 2000. So, I mean, I've, I mean, I'm definitely been on, I mean, higher and lower over the years, depending on, I mean, where I've worked and stock market and stuff like that. I mean, I've, I mean, my kids are a bit older now. I mean, it's uh, in their early twenties now. And so it's trying to pass along like my failures of like, I mean, living within my means or just, I mean, being smart about saving and stuff like that. I think, uh, I mean, I, I didn't have a lot of good sort of family guidance, I guess I could say in personal finance. And that's one thing I think is so important these days is to teach that guidance. And there's a lot of good tools out there now. Um, for tracking that. I've definitely, and, and having bootstrapped a company, I mean, we used to get, be down to our last dollar and then get 50 grand the next day. Like it was this crazy up and down life of, of bootstrapping. And so, I mean, I've kind of lived it all <laughs> in that sense. I kind of, the one good thing I think is I kind of bring that frugality now to the company where we have a decent amount of money in the bank from our fundraise, but it's really treating it more like a bootstrap. Like, I mean, yeah. we don't have to just blow money for money's sake. So I think I'm at this kind of stage of the game, I'm really looking at it as like, okay, how long can we stretch this? But, and really looking at every dollar of, as an investment. And on my side, it's really just, I mean, thankfully my kids are all past college now and I don't have to pay for that anymore. So it's easier <laughs> to kind of predict what the next, uh, the next several years are going to be. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think you're not alone in terms of not, uh, not being taught whether family school, uh, having that kind of knowledge, it's something that unfortunately we either have someone in your family who really is focused on it and knows it or, or you're kind of, you know, figure it out on your own. So it's, it's awesome that you've, you've had that and been able to learn from your experiences over the years and bootstrapped company and being yeah. able to apply that to your current situation. No, it's a, I mean, failure is kind of the best teacher. So I think, uh, I mean, but it always makes the the wins better in a, in a sense. And so I think it's, it's at some point you just like have to take those learnings. And I mean, especially when you have kids, it's like, make sure that they understand like, okay, here's where I screwed up four times. And uh, I mean, try not to do that again. So, Yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, at least pass those on. Yeah. What would you say is the best investment when you're talking about wins just a second ago? What would you say the best investment that you've made? I mean, it's a time. I mean, honestly, it's it's investing in the company. I mean, myself, investing in myself, I guess is the better way to say it is. After I sold my company, I knew I wanted to do something else, but I knew I had a learning and I got to, I mean, there was different things I wanted to do to kind of build up to starting another company someday. I think just from a financial investment, I can't say, I mean, I haven't been in the stock market back since the, I mean, for a while now, just since the, I mean, the last crash, but it's the investing in yourself for the future um, and making sure really, I mean, to me, time is more of a currency than money is at this point. So it was making sure that spending time with your family properly and spending time on the business properly. And as an entrepreneur, that's always a hard lesson to learn as well. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's now it's just trying to put your, I mean, the eggs in the right basket in terms of uh, of time more than money. 
Yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. And uh, it's what you're what you're doing with the, the assets that you have in unstructured data, right? Is time yeah, is yeah. a big component of that and being able exactly. to, to look at that. But investing in yourself makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, we don't always make good decisions. What would you say is the <laughs> dumbest money mistake oh that you've made? <laughs> Letting other people manage your money. When I was at Microsoft, Microsoft was doing really well. It just felt like free money. It was like everybody was waiting for it to double again. And and this is right before the crash in, in 2000. And I left Microsoft and got a recommendation for a money manager and was like, oh, cool. I mean, I'll, he's like, diversify, do this, do that, do this. And thinking that someone else has your best interests and they're not just trying to pump and dump you to, I mean, make their commission. That was completely the dumbest thing I've ever done. And I ended up losing like most of it just from when it crashed and and uh, being in a bunch of random other things that he had suggested. And I just took my eye off the ball. And that's, I mean, that's probably the, one of the more painful lessons of uh, with money, especially. And this is something I wish I had gotten taught is just make sure you're not delegating responsibility. And even if you make stupid mistakes, at least make it, make sure it's your mistake. <laughs> not that you just like allowed someone else to kind of like make a st- mistake for you. So. Yeah, no, I like that. Yeah, then you can at least learn. And hopefully that's, if you do make a mistake yeah. it, and you're making it, you can at least learn from it and yeah, and uh, make better decisions in the future. Yep, no, for sure. That was, uh, and, and even just with the stock market and stuff, I mean, just getting strung out on credit where they push you to, to go over your ba- like bounds a little bit for what you really want and just being strong about setting a line and being comfortable with it. Yeah, makes sense. Well, Kirk, this has been uh, been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sitting down and um, sure. I want to leave you with the last word. So anything that you want to share with the audience and then please let everyone know how they can connect with you outside of this podcast. Yeah, no, it's been great. Really appreciate the conversation. And uh, so the company Unstruck Data is, uh, we're on Twitter. I think it's at Unstruck. And then um, myself at Kirk Marple on Twitter. And um, LinkedIn is a great way to get a hold of me as well. Awesome. Well, Thanks again for sitting down. This was a lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time <laughs> yeah. and I appreciate you you know, diving in deep on what you're building. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. On your way out, please share the podcast with others. It's the only way that the community grows and others hear these incredible stories from entrepreneurs and top performers. And of course, pound that subscribe button so you get notified when episodes drop every Friday. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich and of course your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a very profitable day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate Caught in a circle saying I'll never leave this place Some words got you searching from the bright side over and over until you look